This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Well, it is, it's good to be back. Um, haven't, again, haven't been with, with you all in, in a little while, several weeks. Um, you, you can't tell me we don't have the best sanctuary, at least in town. Come on, this is, this is... This is fancy. Um, God, God's showing off for us this morning. Um, if, you're, if you're new to our church, uh, welcome to, to Outdoor Church at Mosaic. Uh, we, we've been hanging out in this park a little bit now, haven't we? Um, it's pretty wild, but this is, it's been a good setup for us. Let me, let me just give you a little heads up where we're headed. Uh, we, we do know uh, that this glorious weather will come to an end sooner or later here in Albuquerque. Uh, we're we're kind of targeting... Uh, the Thanksgiving as our as our dream finish line of being in the park. So, I believe that's uh, four more Sundays after today, um, and we're working towards uh, being indoors uh, after Thanksgiving. So, you know, those last two Sundays, I, I was talking to somebody this week, was like, you know, we're playing with fire a little bit there. You know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see who the real who the real followers of Jesus are those two Sundays. Um, but bring your, maybe we might have to bring some blankets on those last two, but we'll see how it goes. But we're not sure where we're going to end up. Uh, we're having a couple different conversations about some uh, indoor spaces for us. You know, one is, one is on campus here, of course, uh, which is the gym. If you were with us last winter, that's where we were last winter. So that's, that's a possibility that we're working through. Uh, our original space, we're kind of debating whether that'll be a good space for us or not, uh, which is the cafeteria. And then there's also one off-site um, space that we're, we're kind of considering. So that's a lot of vagueness. I, I just told you absolutely really nothing. Um, but hey, that's where we're headed. So uh, welcome to Life at Mosaic, where we, uh, where we just roll with the punches. So if you've brought a Bible with you, let me invite you to open that up. Uh, we are working through a section of the scriptures uh, that's contained in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, so that we, if you're new to the Bible or newer to the Bible, we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are, you know, eyewitness accounts of, uh, that record some, not all, of the events that happened in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're not looking at the whole thing. We're actually just slowly, methodically, um, verse by verse, working through the opening verses of chapter 5, which are commonly called uh, the Beatitudes. Um, and the Beatitudes are a part of a larger um, section of this, these three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which are commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. So, so the setting is, is, is Jesus is relatively new, um, in the public atmosphere as far as being a, a, a public teacher. And he's come and he's, he's, he's basically summarized his message by saying this. Uh, Repent and believe the good news uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in chapters 5 through 7 are contained uh, the first public discourse that we have recorded at least in our Bibles of Jesus Christ. And we're just looking at these um, open, this opening section, you know, Jesus' sermon, you know, obviously without, without saying the most profound, you know, sermon ever preached. And so me expanding upon it is, is a little treacherous. Um, 
But, but these opening verses, you know, I don't know. Again, we've got a wide group of people. I don't know how long you've been around the Bible or Jesus. I've been around the Bible and Jesus for almost 20 years now. And I've come to this conclusion. That as seriously as I take the Bible, which I take the Bible very seriously. Uh, we are, you know, we're a Bible-believing church. We believe it's the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. We're very serious about the Bible here. We preach the Bible. We talk the Bible. We study the Bible. But I've been around Jesus in the Bible for 20 years, and I, I've pretty much convinced myself of this. I don't take these words very seriously. I've read Matthew chapter 5 in its entirety, I mean 5 through 7 in its entirety, but specifically these Beatitudes, and I've kind of just glossed over them. Like, like Jesus is just kind of saying some nice things to introduce a sermon, maybe like I'm doing right now. Like he's just kind of like giving us some religious platitudes to kind of just, to just float over. And after spending time in these, friends, this is the gold. I'm telling you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, it's the gold. Jesus didn't just subsequently throw these words out to look like a lofty public speaker. This is the gold we're digging in. So this morning, I'm going to read just the one beatitude that we're looking at, which is the fourth uh, beatitude, and it it reads as this. This is verse 6, so if you're following along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this is the word of our Lord, and it will endure forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we turn now to you um, needing to hear from you. Lord, we have all um, just come out of a a week of being constantly consumed with information and words and emails and text messages and social media posts and all the things. Lord, we've we've been spoken to all last week. But Lord, this is this is the day that you've set apart for your people to uniquely hear from you. It's the Lord's day. And Lord, we need to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these next 30 or 40 minutes or however long we go this morning and that you would speak to your people and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the things that Jesus is telling us. Lord, I don't think that these are just things to be skimmed over or put on a plaque over our dinner tables Lord, I believe that this is, this is the life abundant. So help me to communicate that to your people today. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we don't watch a ton of live television. Uh, you know, as probably you, we, we stream a lot of our shows we watch or we record them and then we're able to like kind of fast forward. Um, but, but right now it's, uh, it's baseball playoffs and right now is about the time when I start watching baseball uh, is the end. Uh, that's about, about my level interest. So I just want to see who wins. And so we've been watching a good bit of baseball. And uh, this opening illustration has nothing to do with baseball. So don't check out if you're not a sports fan. Uh, this, this opening illustration has to do with marketing. Um, I, here's, here's the thing. I've been watching, get, get a good bit of commercials when we're watching live sports. 
um, marketing agencies and whoever is writing these commercials get it. Uh, they get you. Um, I don't know. Maybe we've got some like marketing and advertising students here from UNM or something. I don't know what they're teaching you, you know. But they, you know, people that are writing our commercials have a profoundly robust anthropology, and by that mean I, that big fancy word anthropology, like they understand the heart of man. Uh, case in point, um, the the newest uh, Google Pixel Six phone. Now, hear me, hear me on this, the late Steve Jobs. Uh, I would never buy one. Um, I'm a committed Apple cult follower. Um, but but these, these new Google Pixel phones, uh, the, the marketing that they're doing for these is, is really good. Uh, the, the, the premise of their, their kind of series of commercials they're doing right now is uh, their, their, their motto, their statement is, for who you are. You know, these phones they've developed are for who you are. And so, you know, you know, make no qualms about it. Like, they are after your heart in these commercials. And one of the most profound uh, parts of this commercial series was captured in, in their, their advertising the, the camera on the phone. And, man, I wish we were inside. I would just show the video. Um, we're not like a super edgy church where we're, like, always showing cool videos. But, like, I'm going to do my best to describe this commercial. But you're going to need to go home and watch it because I don't think I'm going to be able to tug at your heart the way the commercial does because, you know, they've got – pads of backdrop music in the background, you know, all, there's all kinds of factors, but I, I wrote down the script of, of the commercial because it's that good. It's brief, so bear with me. I, I realize a scripted commercial does not tug on heartstrings, but I'm going to give it a shot. So here's, here's the essence of the commercial. You know, this foam was built for who you are, and, it, and it's this, this vision of this beautiful young family uh, that's just introduced their first child into their home and he's taking his, his first picture of his, of his child. And, and here's the text of, of the commercial. Imagine like a really soft, gentle dad. You know, like, I'm, I'm going to do my best. It says, this is the first photo of your life, son. Your first smile, your first bath, the room we made for you. And you'll meet Nana and Grandpa. And you'll see the world in your own way. I'll teach you how to dress. I know you're going to make mistakes in that department. Your first kiss, I can't believe I'm saying that. And then the, you know, hook, line, and sinker, like, here, here it is. Like, this is, this is it. The dad says this to his son through the camera. I can't wait for the world to see you like I do. Google, Pixel phone, right? I can't wait for the world to see you like I do. I am absolutely convinced that every person, without exception here, um, you know, even not here, that all of humanity was made for this single reason, to be seen, known, and loved. Like, I, I you know, I, I, I see the way the God of the Bible meets with people and here's what he does. He sees them in the deepest, most profound, meaningful ways. He knows them at the depths of their being. And then he loves them. And I know this also to be true of you. The idea of being seen, known, and loved is incredibly threatening. 
The idea of allowing someone, much less the divine one, know the depths of your being, the good, the bad, the ugly, the worst parts of yourself, to, to be seen like that, to be known like that, is really threatening. And it would be much safer um, to not allow that happen because here's the threat that, that, is, that is underneath that. It's the threat of being rejected. It's the threat that someone might know the worst about you and then not like it. And, and what I think Jesus is doing here is he is he's gravitating to the heart of our desire. You know, he uses this language of hungering and thirsting, which could easily be interchanged with craving and desire. So, so what I think Jesus is doing is he's inviting his followers to follow him into that incredibly uncomfortable space that we would call your cravings, your desire, your passion. And um, here's the thing about the Beatitudes, all of them. I, I could say this about, about all of them. What, what Jesus is primarily interested in is renewing us from the inside out. What Jesus is keenly interested in is your interior life, which then unfolds in your external behavior. And depending on your familiarity with Jesus and the scriptures and the, the Christian faith, our inclination is to work on ourselves from the outside in, right? It's to present ourselves in a way that would seem lovable, that would seem as though no one could reject us. But Jesus, counterintuitive Jesus says, no, I want, I want to go into the depths of your being first. Uh, before we head into the text, um, full disclosure, um, two books have largely influenced my um, thought on this passage. Um, I mean, I've read a number of commentaries, all those things, but like two books, and I don't always do this because I just don't know where to give credit in this sermon, so I may say something that I picked up from a book, and I just want to give credit where credit's due. So two books. Uh, the first one's called Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, it's by a guy named James Smith, so if you're a reader, Jot that down, read that down. That, that book's been around for a number of years, probably 10 years or so. That's been very formative for my own thinking about how our lives are, are formed and shaped at the desire level. So there's that. But the second book um, came out just a couple weeks ago, maybe not even two weeks ago. And I've been looking forward to this book for a while. Uh, this book is called The Soul of Desire. And it's by a guy named Kurt Thompson. And he's actually um, a, a psychotherapist and a, and a neurobiologist. How's that for an education? Uh, so he, but he writes from a, from, a, from a deeply Christian perspective. And so he's written three books, all of which I'd commend, Anatomy of the Soul, uh, The Soul of Shame. He writes a book on shame. And then he, he's written this book, The Soul of Desire. And so uh, that book has largely formed my thinking. But, but here's, here's how I'll kind of segue into to the text. In that book, he, he kind of uses two Bible passages to frame his whole thinking on desire. Uh, the first one we use in our call to worship, which is Psalm 27.4. You know, one thing I seek um, to, dwell in the, in, in, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty forever. So his premise of the book and kind of what I've been alluding to is like we were, we were made to dwell with God. 
to be seen, known, and loved by God. That's what it means to dwell with God. So he uses that text, but the second text I found very insightful, and, I, and I'm getting to, the te- to our text. And the second text is the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So not in Matthew's Gospel, but in John's Gospel. And it's when Jesus is getting a bit of a public following, and he's starting to invite people to follow him. And he's got this group of people coming. And in, in John chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus asks this incredibly haunting question. It's been haunting me all week. And it is this. He says, what are you seeking? Now, if you've been around the Bible, you've heard Jesus talk about seeking a lot. In fact, the Bible frequently talks about seeking. seeking. It's in, in the New Testament, the word that Jesus uses there is used 116 times, which is a lot. He says, what are you seeking? But that word could, could also invariably be translated wanting, desiring, or craving. And I think in that question, Jesus is getting after what he's, what he's offering us in this beatitude. So the question that I'm going to ask you today, and I'm going to try to walk you through maybe finding an answer, is what do you want? What are you craving? What are you longing for? What are you desiring? That's the question. Here's how we're going to look at the text. I'm going to use uh, three points. If you're new to my preaching, I typically give points uh, for us to follow. Here's, we're going to ask three questions of this passage. Uh, the first one is, is Jesus' question in John 1. What do you want? Uh, the second question we're going to ask is, where are you looking for it? And then the third question we're going to ask is, where will you actually find it? So what do you want? Where are you looking for it? And where will you find it? Let's talk about what do you want? Um, I think when Jesus invites the language of hungering and thirsting, uh, he's, he's essentially telling us this. Uh, your, your appetites are too weak. You're kind of you're like a... You know, a young child, I don't know when this ends, you know, for different kids, different, like you're the child that just, you just want the staples, right? Nuggets and fries and a juice box, right? Jesus is, he's inviting us into deeper categories of craving. He's saying, here's where wholehearted, blessed living happens in your desire. So he's saying, you know, your appetites are too weak. Your desires aren't strong enough. You are a creature who was made to long. God designed you with craving. He designed you to have an appetite. One of my kids this week, um, you know, we're, we're Western Americans who are in the grand scheme of the wor- world pretty wealthy. One of my kids several times this week experienced hunger pains. <laughs> like he's never, he's never felt that before. And the look he gave me, it, it clued me into what Jesus is after. Like, he looked at me like, Dad, I don't know what this pain is, but I need it soothed immediately. Like, he, one day he got off of school, and he was just like, Dad, the lunch was terrible. I haven't eaten all day. Get me home. And I told him, I got some jerky in the truck. He's like, oh, my, you know, he was just so happy we had some beef jerky. But, like, that intense craving, appetite, longing, Jesus is saying you were made for that. You're blessed if you feel that. Now, the, the problem arises uh, when our desires become dangerous, right? Like, even as a child, like, you know, we, we, we're so enthusiastic 
about our desire life. I mean, again, children have been so insightful for me in this. And if you don't have children, that's okay. But you, you know this, like children have just uncurbed appetite for like dangerous things. Like, hey, I'd like to run across Paseo, Del Norte. Uh, you, know, like I, you know, like things that, where, their, where their desires need to be curbed, right? That's, that's why God gave us parents, you know? But like these insatiable things, like they were made for adventure, and the journey, and excitement, and food, and, and play, like all those things, everything that is our childhood um, is the life of desire. Now, here's, here's the problem. Some of us, most of us, maybe all of us, um, were told no to our appetites all the time. Our desires were quenched. Our our. our squelched really not quenched they were squelched they were smashed we were told that we were too much emotionally right like you come home crying welled up with pain or whatever you experience and you know maybe dad was like hey you know stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about like that kind of you know like a lot of us experienced that and so what we were taught and now what we're living out as adults is we were taught where as our desires are dangerous too much. Just, just keep, it, keep it steady, right? Like stay the course. Don't feel all that stuff. Don't go into that passion. And Jesus is saying, no, that's actually where the blessed life is. The blessed life is to feel your craving, to feel that you were made for so much more. So, so where are we looking for it? Where, where are we trying to get this satisfied? To understand kind of the depths of our desire and how it plays out in our life, you have to understand what happened to humanity, and you're a part of that. And what happened to humanity, um, you know, one of the really statements of the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, prior to these events that are recorded for us, um, humanity had um, just complete access to God. They had complete access to, them, to themselves, complete access to God. He lived among them. There was perfect dwelling. It was harmonious. There was no rebellion. There was no division. There was no squelching of desire. It, God said, listen, I've made all this for you to enjoy. And then he put a boundary, right? He said, all this except for this. I have to, you know, I'm going to protect you from yourself, but you have to trust me. And you have, to, you have to stay off of this tree. And so what we see recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3 is um, evil coming into the world. And what evil does is it takes our desire and it distorts it. What evil does is it takes our longings and it redirects them. What evil does is it takes our cravings and offers us a cheap substitute. So the things that, that uh, Adam and Eve, the, our first parents, were craving and longing and desiring, uh, namely to, to experience like divinity, right? They, they had a desire to live for more. They had a craving and a longing to, to have more. It wasn't the desire that was inherently the problem. It was acting on it. And when evil came in, it betrayed them. And it said, listen, God's withholding from you. 
right? He's, he's given you a lot of good things here, but why is he telling you no to this one? And so what we see evil do uh, in the creature of, of Satan, right, this created being who comes and he, he, he invites humanity to take their desires elsewhere. Put them on yourself, like redirect them from God. And so what happens um, at the end of that event is, is shame enters the world. You remember this? So, so humanity immediately hides uh, behind self-made fig leaves. Or self, you know, they, they grab something to cover themselves, to hide. That's what shame does. So shame says, your desires are too much. Uh, you can't contain them. God can't contain you, so hide. Hide, hide yourself. And then the, the, the provoking question, you know, that God comes out of that event with is, where are you? Now, now God wasn't looking for, you know, geographical coordinates for the people. Like, he, he knew where they were physically, but what he was after was their heart. He's, he's saying, what, you know, why are you hiding your desire from me? So here's, here's what I, I kind of want to do. I want to do some diagnosis work because I think God's asking you the same question right now. Where are you? Like how has shame taken good desire in your heart and twisted it? How has shame and evil betrayed uh, the things that you were made uh, to well up inside of you? Let me, let me just give a couple practical examples. And listen, we could be here all afternoon with my list, but, you know, I've only picked out a few, so I may get you, I may not. You know, you, you get home um, from work. Uh, this will be a husband-wife scenario, so, you know, it could go the other way. Maybe you're not married. Just stick with me. You get home from work, and, you know, this is husband working. Wives work, too. Just, again, it's just an illustration. Husband gets home from work. He's had a great day at work. You know, his project's going real well. Uh, he's getting, you know, he's getting applause, you know, like everything. It was just a great day. He comes in, uh, you know, it's dinner time or whatever. Uh, mom's, you know, corralling kids, cooking dinner. Smells like a, a hint of burn on the, on the chicken, you know. Things are wild. Uh, the kids decided to play Legos after school. God help us, Legos, right? Like Legos everywhere right? And like just the house is crazy. And like you just wanted to come in and like share with your, you know, your significant other, like how great your day was. And she just doesn't have the capacity to interact with you, right? She's frazzled. She's overwhelmed. Like it's a lot going on. And so in your deepest desire uh, to experience acceptance and approval from your wife, a good desire, you feel rejection and you feel sad. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe you don't have kids or Legos, kids who like Legos. Um, maybe, maybe it's just like at the, end of, at the end of the month. And, you know, as, as the financial guy, Dave Ramsey, says, you, you know, the, you ran out of month. At, you, you ran out of month at the end of the money kind of deal, right? Like you're just, you're just adding up the numbers and the bills just aren't stacking up and you just have insufficient funds and it's just you know, this desire to have security in the world, um, it's just not being met. 
And so you just, the, the waves of anxiety and fear and insecurity and doubt are just crashing on you. You just don't know what to do with that. Um, those are just a couple examples. Now, here's, here's, here's how I want to answer the question, where are you looking for it? So the, the things you're wanting, right, acceptance and approval from your spouse, you're wanting security and confidence in the world to be able to take, like those are good desires. Like there's nothing wrong with those desires. But what evil does is it comes and looks at you in the face and it redirects you. And it says, you'll never find that in your spouse. It says, your kids are always gonna disappoint you. You're never gonna make enough money. And so what happens is shame, again, Genesis 3, finds itself in your story and it offers you a cheap substitute. And so the husband in his sadness and rejection, goes to the only place where he's never rejected, namely his web browser. Or the wife who's experiencing the coldness of an emotionally distant relationship runs to the, to the, to the only source of escape that she knows how to soothe the ache inside of her, you know, namely Grey's Anatomy, whatever your choice is. Right? Or, or the, you know, whoever, single, the, the person who just has not enough money at the end of the month, who just longs for a sense of security, like, am I going to make it? Good desire is redirected into just overspending. And just, what's another credit card bill? Right? Like, it's this misdirected, misguided desire. So then, so those are ways, and again, fill in the blank for your life. That might not be you. But where will you find what you're actually looking for? And this is, this is the gold of the passage. Um, and it's, it's contained in, in Jesus' word, righteousness. Now, again, if you've been around the Bible, uh, you'll know that's a, that's a heavy theme. Uh, the righteousness of God in Paul's writings, particularly the book of Romans, is, is, is a theme. Uh, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in, in his Sermon on the Mount, I would say is probably the primary thrust and theme of his sermon. But they're, they're, they're different. So if you've been around churches like ours, when you hear the word righteousness, here's probably what you think. You think of a legal, forensic declaration of being right with God. And that, that is a total appropriate use of that word. Like when the Bible says, you know, that's what it means to be righteous, that, that absolutely is a, is a part of it. But the way Matthew, uh, in general, and specifically the way it's recorded in, in this sermon, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what, what's happening here is Jesus is after more of the social and relational dynamics of the word. Because here's, here's who he's speaking to. He's speak, speaking to people who think that um, righteousness primarily has to do with um, meeting external standards of behavior, right? So he would say things like this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot come into the kingdom of heaven. Or later in chapter six, he would say, seek first, crave, desire, long first for the kingdom of heaven and, the, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. 
And, and, and what he does, and you, you can read this on your own, what he does is he takes the law, the external standards of behavior, things like adultery, things like uh, anger, and he says, listen, it has very little to do with your external behavior. Right here, you know, this is how Jesus says it. He says, you've heard it said that, uh, you know, to not commit adultery, you know, like is basically don't, don't sleep with someone else. Right? That is what your standard of it is. But he says, but I say to you, if you lust after a person, even in your heart, you've already committed the act of adultery. Or he'd say, you know, you've heard it said that, you know, don't commit adultery. I mean, don't, don't uh, murder someone. Right? So basically, if you don't kill someone, literally, physically, you're good. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if you even get angry with someone inside of your heart, you've already killed them. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, here's what righteousness is. It's relational wholeness. If you want to have a blessed life, what you must crave is righteousness, namely to have wholeness in all of your relationships. Now, what you might have just heard me say is you can't be mad at anybody. There can be no conflict in your life. You've got to go wrinkle out. all. That's not what he's after. What he's saying is in your deepest part of yourself, in your desire level, if what you long for and crave is relational wholeness, you will be blessed. And not only will you be blessed, but you will be satisfied meaning your longings will be met. And um, here's, here's why um, that is, that's just subversive. This is, what, this is essentially what Jesus is saying. If you're going to belong to me and my kingdom, here's how to have a whole heart. Feel your desire to be rightly whole. And I'll meet that need. Doesn't mean your life's going to be without conflict or trouble, right? Thanksgiving's coming. You're all thinking, what's it going to feel like this year? Like he's not promising that. But what he is saying is if you long and you crave for wholeness at the relational level, I will meet it. Let me close with this. Um, uh, we, we are watching uh, a show right now. It's been hard to stream. It's hard to find. So if, if you need to find it, let me know. It's called The Chosen. I know a number of you are uh, watching this show. The Chosen's a, a really well-produced um, show about the life and ministry of, of Jesus. And it shows these great interactions uh, between Jesus and his early followers. And we're in season two now. And kind of the, the whole... The whole thread on all the episodes, I think, that this producer's going with is he's, he's really honing in on Jesus' call to follow me, right? Like that was Jesus, you know, anytime he would interact with a new believer, uh, he would say, you know, follow me. And one of them, you know, all these interactions are really profound in the show, but the most recent one we saw was in, an interaction uh, between a man named Nathaniel and Jesus, and the backstory on Nathaniel, and here's the thing about the show, The Chosen. So if you watch it, you know, you got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Like, they're, very, they're trying to be very faithful uh, to the Bible, which is great. Um, and they're trying to do it, like, in a non-cheesy way, which is also great. Um, but they're also adding a little bit of texture and flavor that, you know, we might not have in our Bible. So obviously, 
we have things recorded for us, but not every nuance of Jesus' interaction. So they, they kind of add some texture and flavor. And what I like about what they did with Nathaniel is they gave his backstory, because the story of Nathaniel's in the Bible, but basically the backstory that the show gave was this. Uh, Nathaniel was a, a thoroughly Jewish man, uh, you know, a law-loving, God-following man. He was an architect um, in the show, at least, and he had done some designs on a synagogue, and uh, he had, you know, devoted all his life and his work to God. And this synagogue came tumbling down and had injured some people, and he was, you know, he was going to be liable for this, and you know, he w- there were going to be career implications. And so in the show, he goes out to this fig tree in the middle of nowhere, and this is the part that's recorded in our Bibles, and he just cries out to God. He just cries out to God, you know, God, I, I have good desire in me. You know, I, I wanted to do this right, and I'm not doing it right. And he's just unraveled at this tree. And then a couple days later, he's, he's introduced to Jesus. And there's this profound moment. Uh, you know, Nathaniel is skeptical about what he's heard about Jesus. He's suspicious of this man. He doesn't believe he's the long-anticipated Messiah. But they encounter each other. And, um, you know, Jesus, he already knows him. He says, yeah, I, I know about you. And, and you know, he, sa- he calls him the truth teller. You're the truth teller. You know, there's no deceit in you. And Nathaniel is just taken aback. And in this scene, you, you see the demeanor of Nathaniel just drop. Like this man knows me. And he feels really threatened by him. And Jesus says, I've known you longer than you realize. I'm paraphrasing this point, but he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And in that statement, Nathaniel just, he just melts. You just see his, his whole, he just melts that, that, that Jesus had seen him. And then Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and, and, and you just see Nathaniel look at the hand and he's, he's just loved. And he's not threatened anymore. Because he knows that he's been seen. He's been known at, the, at his lowest point. And now he's been loved. And I don't know how this character is going to unfold in the show. Um, but here's, here's what I think is true of you. And I'll, and I'll close with this. I think many of you are threatened by God's desire for you. And I use that word specifically because I think many of you struggle to believe that God could actually desire someone like you. But what we see in the God of the Bible, and this is unique to the God in the Bible, is that he made you because he loves you, not the other way around. He does not love you just because he made you. He made you because he loves you. And I think in the coming, in the arrival, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, there is no greater banner over your life that says God has seen me, he has known me, and he loves me. And I, you know, I don't know where you're at with Jesus this morning. I'm assuming we're all over the map. But, but I'm also assuming many of you are uncomfortable 
with him going to the level of desire with you. Because desire has been misused in your life. And so this morning, as, as we kind of conclude, I want you to know, like if you've heard nothing I've said today, hear this. That God's desire for you is secured by the work of Jesus Christ, not by your own. Like if there's anything that just needs to wash over you, it is this. That God deeply desires for you to know him and to be known by him. And that the climactic, unique way that God makes himself known to you is through his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was pinned on a cross of death, on your behalf, as your substitute, in your place, lovingly, he uttered these words. It is finished. Have you ever asked yourself, like, what is he talking about? It is finished. Here's what's finished. The work of securing your relationship with God. The righteousness, the relational wholeness that you will never be able to muster up, work up, he secured it for you. And then if the work on the cross wasn't enough, here's how he guaranteed this. This is the linchpin of the Christian faith. He rose bodily from death to life. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ says this about you. I will never change my mind about you. You did nothing to secure this relationship and you will do nothing to put it in jeopardy. The work is finished. You belong to me. Now, what do you want? Let's pray. Jesus, your words are penetrating to the soul. They are haunting to our hearts. Lord, I know, I I can imagine, I'm not the only one uncomfortable with you saying that you want to be in my desire life. Lord, I'd much rather you just stay at church with me. I'd much rather you just stay in my quiet times. there, There are just many more safe and comfortable places I'd rather you be, but Lord, I believe that you are saying to all of us this morning that here's where wholehearted, blessed living happens uh, by craving just a whole relationship with you, even at the desire level. So Father, take these words. Lord, I I know they fall on different people at different places in life and uh, breathe life into them. Lord, if anything's from me, have it just blow away into the bosky. Uh, But Lord, if it's from you, oh, would it take root? Would you help us to be curious with it? And would you just be kind with us about it and uh, how we can relate to you uh, in your word? We pray all these things in your name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 